Good morning, everybody. Uh, I, I feel that this piano has been put here to stop me walking around too much. Uh, I think I was moving left and right quite a bit last time. Um, and so, how about if I set off a little off-center? So I got about as much space to go both ways and the water's over there. Uh, we, we're, we're continuing this morning in the book of Galatians. And um, before we get to the text, I just wanted to share with you that, that God has a, a great sense of humor. Um, this week, God has been messing with me, um, it, particularly in preparing for, for this, this, this morning. Um, I'm reading from a translation of the Bible that I've never used before this morning, uh, the, the New King James Version of the Bible that is this, um, that was, I'm convinced was the very Bible that Moses brought down from, 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 from the mountain. Uh, I'm not using that. Um, I hope I don't get in trouble for using different stage props this morning. Uh, I will confess to you that I cannot, I cannot read my notes when they're either side, so I have to have something center, and this, this little, little wooden chair is, is kind of what works for me. I have had four, five, six different sets of notes. I've had the single page notes. I've had the one post-it note note. I've had the no note notes. Uh, and, and, and we're going to go with what we've got. Um, there was even this this morning. This is a pen. If this is your pencil, anybody's pencil, this has been left lying around on the stage for about a month. <laughs> I feel as if it might be Aaron Keyes' pencil. If not, if it's Ben's pencil, I have this pencil. I like it. <laughs> and, and I let it sit there for a week, another week, another week, and eventually I'm going to take that thing. Uh, but even this morning, the Lord was laughing with me, and he said, tell them that. <laughs> this is, these things are all aspects of law. Which version of the Bible we read and whether we swear by that Bible as the, as the definitive translation of the text, whether we use notes or don't use notes, whether we say that the only way to present before a congregation is to have notes or no notes. And, and, and I, I'm always convicted by the fact that when Paul in the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians says that when he goes to the Corinthians that he decides that, that he's not going to use clever words um, or words of logic or wisdom, but instead he wants his message to rest on the power of God. So I presume that meant that he had no notes. Therefore, it's somehow ungodly to have notes. But what I want to show you this morning, and not only that God has an immense sense of humor, and, and the funniest people on the planet, whoever they are, if you put them all together, not the foul ones, just the funny ones, God is funnier than all of them. And this was my experience as I was just beginning to prepare, not only the pencil and the notes and the Bible and all these things, and I realized that every one of those was some aspect of law. And it's law that we're going to talk about this morning. And so before we do, let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. God, we give you thanks this morning for your almighty sense of humor. And we pray, Lord, that as we approach this text, you will help us to, to laugh at ourselves, to find ourselves in the text Lord, and as we do so, to see Jesus as the answer to every lack, everything that we aren't, everything that we can't aspire to or be, you are, Lord. We thank you, God, Father God, for your son, Jesus, and we pray, O oh Lord, for the fullest manifestation, Lord, of your power, glory, love in our midst this morning. Teach us, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
What's funny? <laughs> I thought something behind me. Um, let's see how we get on with the, the screens this morning, shall we? Uh, we're going to read this morning from Galatians 2, verses 1 through to 16, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Who uses that? Okay, who uses the New International Version? Who uses something other than one of those two? Well, what are those? Shout them out. Message? Okay. Okay. A whole lot of different versions of the Bible going on here, which makes it difficult for us to follow along. So we try sometimes to put them all up there so everybody can read the same text. And, and there may be variations in, in the particular translation you have. But let, let's go through this. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. So remember, this is Paul talking. And he's telling the story of how after the Lord met him on that Damascus road, he, he didn't immediately run and go and spend time with the other disciples, but he, 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 he did some other things before he got there. And so after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you and from those who seemed to be influential. What they were makes no difference for me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas, and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas, who was Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Some translations say those of the circumcision. That is not a crazy party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that the conduct, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you like a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified or counted righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Can we say those words? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Amen. Peter's behavior is strange, right? Um, but if we... I find it easy sometimes when I'm reading the Bible to, to, to laugh at the person in the text and to say what a terrible person he or she was. We all do this, yeah? 
And when we do this, we, 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 we think, I would never have done that. I would have never been like you. And come away from the scripture with a real clear sense that we are better people than they were. Or is that just me? And so when we read through the Old Testament and we start off in the book of uh, Genesis and we go to the Garden of Eden, we say that we would never have been deceived by the snake, right? And, and having, been dis having, having trodden that snake down, or I don't think the snake had legs at the time, it seems to say in the scripture, um, we, we, we would have lived in the Garden of Eden forever. Or, or if we'd been the ones thrown out of the Garden of Eden and God had given us the law, we would have followed God's law perfectly. And these Jewish Christians, Hebrews, the Hebrews before us, not the Jewish Christians, the Jews, would, would never have, have, have been like us because we would have been perfect and we would have followed God's law and we would have never been thrown out of the land or exiled. Is that what we say? And when Jesus showed up, we would have known that the one walking amongst us who looked like a man, born in a baby in a manger, was the Son of God. We would have seen this, right? Okay, well, just in case... We aren't like that. Let's try and find ourselves somewhere in this text. You see, if there is a, a, a standard of hypocrisy, if there's, if there's a scale of hypocrisy, I think at one end of hypocrisy is probably maybe saying that you like a TV show that you don't really like. Um, who likes Seinfeld? Okay, now, 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 now I, I kind of like Seinfeld. But say I told you I really like Seinfeld and we talk about Seinfeld and we, and we share Seinfeld jokes, but secretly I'm saying, it's junk. Yeah, it's not even funny. I don't know how Taylor laughs at that. What is, exactly, what is wrong with that? But in front of you, Taylor, let's go watch Seinfeld. Yeah, let's get, let's get the box set. Let, let's laugh. <laughs> let's, let's laugh at sitting in the bath, um, whatever, whatever Kramer was doing. <laughs> And let's laugh at no soup for you jokes and those kind of things. But secretly, I'm like, goodness, what is it with him? <laughs> he ain't got any sense of humor. Maybe that's at one end of the scale of hypocrisy. Let's get a little bit more dangerous, shall we? What if I said I like a particular kind of food that I don't like? I love, what's your favorite food? Mexican, all right, we love Mexican. I love Mexican food, so we're gonna go out and eat Mexican food. And I'm gonna eat Mexican food all the day. <laughs> But when I leave, I'm like, oh. Let's get a little more dangerous. Say I say I like a particular sports team. Oh. <laughs> but I don't. And I tell you, I love your sports team. Brian, use your team. All right. I tell you, I love the Kansas Jayhawks. And I wear the shirt and the cap. And I know the names of all the players of the team, but secretly, I'm just hating on them. Is that further along the scale of hypocrisy? Yeah? What if I, what if I, what if I live in a, in a hole in the ground? Have barely any money, but all the money I have, I put into what I wear, and I present myself to you daily as somebody who's got cash. But the truth is, I live in a hole in the ground. Is that further along the scale of hypocrisy? How far can we go? How far can we go from the seemingly insignificant presentation of something that isn't true, but today I'm gonna to pretend it's true, along this scale to the far end? And what's at that far end? 
Because what if Peter's behavior is somewhere towards that other end? Because Paul seems to think that Peter's behavior is right at the wrong end of hypocrisy. Peter knows something, that by the works of the law, no one is justified. He says this in verse 15 and 16. We know, verse 16, that a person is not justified, not counted righteous, not right in God's sight by the works of the law. And that phrase, the works of the law, appears three times, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you know that the law doesn't make you right, why are you acting as if the law does make you right? Doesn't make any sense. That's worse than faking your sports team. That's worse than faking that you like Mexican food. That's worse than faking that you like a particular TV show or not. Yes? I've been told that my affirmation word is yes, so I'm going to use something different this morning. I'm going to try to. Yes. (laughs) The whole word. It's ridiculous, though, what Peter's doing, isn't it? But can we see on the screen verses 15 and 16, please? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Don't you love how we are referred to if you're not Jewish? We're Jews by birth, and we're not like those Gentile sinners. Yet we know. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by, say that phrase, works of the law. For by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So can we talk a little bit about what the works of the law are? If you were to look at the text, you'd see that law is a singular word. So law is like an amalgam, a sum of a number of things. It's referred to in the singular, but works is referred to in the plural. And so it's telling us that there's a lot of works that arise because of the law. Out of the law, whatever that law is, whether that law is the Jewish law, which is what we're going to talk about this morning, or some other moral code, out of that body of law arises works, lots of them. And if we talked about the Jewish law specifically, the Jewish law begins with what? Moses comes down from the mountain and he gives to them how many commandments? Ten. Does it stop there? It doesn't stop there. Because if it had stopped there, they would have had 10 commandments. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Have no other gods before him. If it had stopped there, then there were only 10 things. But it doesn't stop there. Over the course of the centuries, there become 613 commandments. And you can Google this. Google 613 commandments now or later and read through that list. Because you'll see that this is what the 10 commandments become. The rabbis begin to read the Old Testament. They begin to read the first five books of the law, and as they do, they see more law in there. And what's amazing is in there, they see that you shouldn't oppress or mistreat strangers, for you too were strangers in Egypt, and they get that from Exodus 22, 21. They see that you should learn the Torah. They see that you should not lend money with interest. They say that you should not overcharge or underpay. They say that you, they see that you should not prophesy falsely in the name of God. They see that you shouldn't consult mediums. They see that you should pay wages on the day those wages are earned. They say that you should not panic or retreat in battle. And then there are all kinds of laws about sacrificial practices and wrong sexual relationships and all kinds of things, 613 of them. 
And if you were to turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis, you'd be amazed to find that the 613 include a law that they find in the book of Genesis. Everybody turn to Genesis 1:28, And I want to show you this because this is important. Because if you can make law from this, then we might find ourselves in this text somewhere. Everybody, Genesis 1:28, And I'm reading again from the English Standard Version of the Bible. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. One of the 613 commandments is, guess what? Thou shalt be fruitful. You must, as a man, have sexual relationships with your wife in order that you are fruitful. They find this in the law. They call this law. And I find this approach fascinating because it shows me something that I think, do we do this? Do I do this? Do I look at a passage in the Bible and make law of it? 613, it's not just the 10, it's not just the 613, it gets worse than that. Because what happens next? You then have the Talmud, which is intended to be a fence around the Torah. And there are 2,711 pages of that. And if you were to read a page a day, it would take you seven years, five months to get through that. And that is an actual practice. Page of the day. It's a Jewish practice to read the additional law as well as the 613, as well as the 10. How's this making you feel? Works arising from the law. Works, plural, arising from the law. Let me give you an example of some of those additional things in the Talmud. Because the Lord says not to work on the Sabbath, the rabbis say that it's a good idea not to carry a stick on the Sabbath. Because if you carry a stick you might accidentally drag the stick in the ground, and if you accidentally drag the stick in the ground, you've just plowed, and if you plow on the Sabbath, you've just broken the thou shalt not work on the Sabbath. And we laugh, nervously. (laughs) (laughs) And this is how the law has become by the time Jesus arrives. And John 1:17 says, "The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ." The preceding verses, from its fullness, we've all received grace upon grace or grace for grace. God, in the person of Jesus, full of grace, full of truth, encounters the works of the law. And how did that go? Jesus says to them, you've heard it said of old, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, if you have anger in your hearts, it's the same thing. Jesus says to them, you've heard it said of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've had a lustful thought, it's bad. So just because you didn't do it, you thought about it, You watch the video, 
You didn't feel condemned when you watched someone else doing it in a film or a movie. You just didn't do the act, so it's fine. Jesus says to them, you've heard it said of old, hate your enemies. But I say to you, no, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He goes further. Grace and truth encountering the works of the law. He says, when you pray, don't do it in a public place so everyone can see you. Instead, do what? In the secret place, not for the eyes of men. What else does he say? When you fast, when you give charitably, don't announce it with the trumpet. Do it in the hidden place, in the secret place. The sense of humor of God breaks through because he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Funny. It gets further. Jesus encounters the Lord of the Sabbath, encounters the people who are telling him what the Sabbath is for. How does that go? Not well. They bring to him a woman caught, it seems, in the very act of adultery with stones in their hand, ready to stone her. And how does that go? Jesus says to them, whichever of you is without sin, throw it first. Jesus sits by the offering plate and sees people coming by and putting in lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots. And then a little old lady, maybe, throws in barely anything. And Jesus says, what about that? She put in the most. And so are you getting a sense here of how it was when the one full of grace and truth encounters the works of the law. Mary, a sinner, she's called, breaks into the Pharisee's house. This man is actually called Simon the leper. You'll have to read this in all four Gospels to get the whole of this story. In one Gospel, we're told that the woman who comes in is called Mary. Another Gospel, we're told that the man who's housed in is the Pharisee. In another Gospel, we're told that the man who's housed in is called Simon the leper. So I'm going to guess that at some point, Simon was a... How grateful should he be that he wasn't anymore? A little bit. A lot. But what happens is he invites Jesus to his house, and Jesus comes to his house, and Jesus is in his house, and this woman breaks in, and this woman is known as a sinner. Now, what does that mean? Let's think about it. This woman, so in here, in comes someone who we all know is a sinner. Who is that? Don't answer. <laughs> no particular celebrity or anybody, but someone comes into their midst who they all know, <gasps> it's her. And what does she do? She comes in and she prepares a fine meal. She doesn't do that. What does she do? She goes up to Jesus, washes his feet with her tears, since it means she's weeping. Tears are flowing from this woman's face on the feet of Jesus. She starts to wipe his feet with her hair. What are we all thinking, guys? Who is this man? Who is this man? He's not responding to this. I'm going to say something. He's not aroused by this. Seriously. Just look at the text. This is the stark text. And she begins to, to, to wipe his feet with, with an expensive perfume that someone gets indignant because they say, if you'd taken the perfume, you could have sold it and you could have fed the poor for a whole year. You, who are you? What a waste of money. And Jesus says, oh, hold on a second, Simon, the leper. 
Those forgiven much, love much. Those forgiven little, love little. I came here. He didn't wash my feet. He didn't greet me with a kiss. You didn't anoint me with anything. But she, because her sins are great and vast, cannot stop doing this thing that she's doing, even though you, by your law, have a problem with it. This is the one who is grace and truth encountering the works of the law. And so when you look at all of these things, Jesus, the sum of it all is that the law seems to have become external, right? Adherence to some sort of external rules and practices and behavior as a result of which we can do what? What's the word? Boast. If I pray well, and you like my prayer, yeah. <laughs> if I carry a big Bible, bigger than that, yeah. I said, yeah. If I don't plow on the Sabbath, don't even carry a stick, an endless, 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 and who in the face of Jesus was boasting? Who was boasting in the face of Jesus? Which one of us, when we get before the Lord, are going to really have questions, theological ones? Seriously. The scripture says, I'm not righteous or more righteous than you because of anything I do. You are not less righteous than anyone else because of their works. There's no righteousness hierarchy, is there? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no man can boast. God says, I'm gonna pull out from all humanity any works means of you making yourself right, righteous, just in my sight, that none of you can boast. None of you can boast. The works arising from the law. Not 10, 613, the whole of the Talmud, however many more we can make, there is no way that law makes God check a box and account to our account, our heavenly account, righteousness. So then, what is the purpose of the law? Let's talk about two of them. The first purpose, Romans 3, 19 to 20. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that how many mouths? Every mouth may be stopped, and how much of the world? The whole world may be held accountable to God, for, to God, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the first purpose of the law is to give us knowledge of sin. To reveal sin. To give us sin consciousness, the extent of our own sin. And the law is very, very good at this, isn't it? The law is good at it because the law clashes with the sin in our flesh and causes problems. It, it, it draws the sin out of us. It prizes it out of us. It reveals to us the sin in us. Romans 7, 8. Sin, 
seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Before that passage, Paul is saying, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if the law hadn't told me. Don't. But when the law says, do not covet, sin seizes the opportunity. Seizes an opportunity. And I drew a little diagram, and we could not work out how to get the, the whiteboard in, so we're going to see whether this diagram makes it on stage. There we go. All right. Now, there's this terrible game that I used to play as a child um, when you would kneel behind someone who was standing up. Who else did this? Yes. All right. And the person not knowing you're kneeling behind would push you. Yeah, and what happened? Yeah, you went to the principal's office, is what, is, is, is what happened when the person who was tipped hit their head on the ground and, and uh, horrible. And what do you call one of those things? A teeter-totter, teeter-totter, okay. Seesaw is what I was using. I was looking it up, I couldn't find what it's called. It's called a seesaw. But let's get the point here. Sin seizes an opportunity because of the law. So what's sin doing here? Because of the law, which is the fulcrum, which is the pivot point, sin seizes an opportunity. And what, what happens? All manner of, King James, concupiscence, all kinds of sinful desires. So doesn't that mean that the more law, the more evil desires? Yes? If that's accurate... To be wild to think about this, I had to find some old theologians who agreed with this point that sin is, law is like a fulcrum, that sin is pushing against one end of that, and as a result of the fulcrum that is the law, all manner of evil desires is ar are aroused in us. So the more law, the more. No. The more evil desires. Yes? The evil desires, let's do one more time, the more law, the more. The stronger the point, the more focal the point, the more powerful the sin in us, the more evil desires. So, so this is the first purpose of the law, to show us sin. Now, if we get that this is the point of the law, then we aren't afraid of it. Because we get that God gave us the law to reveal in us sin. That's what the scripture says. To give us a sin consciousness, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Leave that up for a minute, because I'm going to talk a little bit about a, a, an old bit of literature, book of the, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, who's read that book, okay, or seen the movie. Um, 1886, repressive Victorian England, probably way worse than East Cobb, right? <laughs> um, Robert Louis Stevenson writes a book, and he imagines that there is this potion and what is that potion capable of doing? It's capable of separating the evil in us from the good in us. Yeah, that's the essence of the book. And it begins with a man called Dr. Utterson or Mr. Utterson, and he observes a man called Hyde, Mr. Hyde, and he does this terrible thing. And if you track that through the book, Hyde does terrible things a lot. That's all he does. And he does them when? During the day? At night. Curious that Stevenson confined the works of evil to the things we do in darkness. And in the light, what's going on in the light? You have this well-presented man, Dr. Jekyll, respectable, good. In him, there appears to be no evil. Where's the evil? Comes out at night. 
He's separate, but this potion has somehow caused his evil self to be disassociated, to be separated from his good self. And because he's packaged off his bad self for the man that does bad things at night, his good self comes around during the day and acts like he's got none of that in him. Yes? But what happens? Does it work? It works for a little bit. And he can parade around as this fine, upstanding member of the society and everybody loves him and says how good he is and how there's no evil in him. But at night, Hyde does bad things. And Hyde manifests when he's meant to, but then randomly. And then more. And eventually, by the end of the book, permanently. And then kills the whole man by the end of the book. And so what this book, which I remember presenting to a, an ethics professor as one of the greatest works of Christian ethics, had to argue that point, is saying, is that there's two approaches. When we, through the law, find in us sin, that we've got a couple of approaches. Yes, we can compartmentalize ourselves to the night man and the day person. Or we can create a potion to do it for us. But the book tells us that the potion doesn't work. And interestingly, the law doesn't work either as a means of eliminating evil. It doesn't get rid of it. What it does makes it worse. The sin, taking advantage, seizing opportunity by the law, presses down on the fulcrum, the mount. You build your big mountain, but the bigger the mountain that we build, the more the evil desires in us grow because this is what's going on. But if there was a potion that could work and if you could get all the evil out, and it's interesting because later in the book of Galatians, I think it's in chapter five, it begins to talk about the works of the flesh are evident and it lists certain things of the works of the flesh, does it not? If you could package them over into this corner and lock them away and, 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 and have just what was left, what would be left? Pure good. Pure good. Another word for pure good is? Righteousness. How about love? How about if the work that the law does is to show us the extent to which we don't love? But those 10 commandments are showing us you don't love in these 10 ways. That if you loved your neighbor, you wouldn't covet their car, their house, their wife, their this. You just wouldn't, if you loved them. If you loved another human being, you wouldn't murder them. Jesus takes it further, and eventually you see you can build all of it up and come to the place where Jesus says, in answer to one of the questions that one of the Pharisees asks him, which is the greatest commandment in the, in the whole Bible? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as your... And then the passing becomes, well, actually, who's my neighbor? I've got to, I've got to find a way out of this because, because, because that's problematic for me. And even that hems us in. So that's the first purpose of the law, to reveal sin. To reveal sin. Not to fix sin. Not to make us righteous in God's sight. 
Let's grasp this this morning, please, if you just hear one thing. Law reveals sin in us. Satan, the accuser, will take that and will cause all kinds of accusation. You're a sinner. You're nasty. You're sick. You're this. You're that. You don't measure up. You're this. You're that. You really don't measure up. That thing you did, yeah? The pencil you stole from the church, yeah? Which I'm going to put back. (laughs) Endless. But if instead of feeling condemnation, acknowledging as condemnation, which is unto death, you come to a second purpose of the law. What if the law's purpose was to keep us until the revelation of Jesus? I can find that in the book of Galatians, but I can't cover the whole book in one morning. We've got a few more weeks to spend. What if the law, which is called like a tutor, Galatians says, it's like a tutor to show us, to point the way to Jesus. You see, because if we can grasp the law in that sense, isn't that then helpful? It's not an end in itself. It was never meant to be the way that we find ourselves or consider ourselves to be righteous before God. Because if it is, then all it leads is to boasting, all it leads is to, is to falling short in some manner, because the scripture says plainly that unless you keep the whole of it, the whole of it, it's not good enough. So that's saying that if you, if you kept all 10 and all and 612, but whatever the 613th was or whatever the law actually is, you fall short there, we will fall short. Church, brothers and sisters, it's not how we please God. Did it work for the Israel nation of Israel? No, it didn't. But yet amidst of that, people still found faith, still saw God, still did things that God says this thing that you did was righteous. Abraham accounted to, God accounted his, his believing him as righteousness. Noah hears God say, build an ark. Noah does what God says and God calls that righteousness. Rahab, was she of the nation of Israel? What was her profession? You, can, you don't have to whisper it. She was a sinner. (laughs) Yes? Hangs a red cord out of her window. Makes it into the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11. She's listed there, along with Samson. Samson's life seemed a little bit outside the, the rules, didn't it? What was he doing? Slapping down lions with jawbones of, that's the word we're gonna use. What else was he doing? Hanging around with whoever Delilah was. Was she of the nation of Israel? No. But she wears him down. Scripture point says something like Samson's just, I'm just going to, I'd rather die than have you keep asking me this question. But Samson's listed in the list of great heroes of faith, Hebrews 11, because somehow he finds God. I remember having a dispute with a minister who called Samson a thug. I said, you ain't in Hebrews 11. (laughs) You're not. He is. The law points the way to Jesus, guards Israel through history to Jesus, shows us how much we need a savior, points the way to him and his work. Tyler, I wanted to stay in. I believe that you are the way, 
the truth, the life forever. Because that is the truth that Jesus says, that the law is not the way to, to my father. I am. No works righteousness, me. Everything else is not truth. Life is not found in systems of law or moral codes or any legal approach. And you see, this is the beauty of this, is that trusting in Jesus, believing that his work was everything and sufficient, brings us to a place where we can rest. Rest. We got nothing to prove. Nothing to prove. It's not a covenant between, grace is not a covenant between God and humanity that humanity is going to break. Grace is a covenant between the Father and the Son that the Son has perfectly fulfilled. Grace is not written on tablets of stone. And you know in the book of Exodus, it happens twice. Moses comes down with these tablets. What does he find when he comes down? There's a big party going on. And Aaron, hang on a sec, hadn't Aaron been the one who'd been going into Pharaoh with him a couple minutes ago, was caught everybody and said, Moses has been gone for a while, and they're like, what should we do? Let's build a big cow out of gold. Yeah, that's what happens. And... Not an aside, but because it's a little funny, because I wouldn't have done this. <laughs> we would have, wouldn't we? Moses has been gone a while. He's been, he's been gone a while. This, this man that led us out of Egypt has been gone. He's been up there like forever. Well, now what? Ladies, bring your earrings. Guys, bring your gold. Let's just meld it down. And when Moses smashes the tablets and he says to him, what did you do? Aaron says, well, I threw all these things in the fire. And what does he say? This cow popped out. That's literally what the text says. <laughs> Moses smashes these tablets that it said were written with the finger of God and eventually though goes back up and comes down with another set. But ultimately still stone tablets, still external. But grace is written where? In our hearts. Not of stone, a heart of flesh. Grace, the gift of God, doesn't require endless sacrifices. Because if every time we sinned, we had to buy or bring from our collection of animals a cow or a bull or a goat or whatever we could afford. Or if we couldn't afford it, we'd have to club together with some other people to buy one. We'd have to take them up to the temple. And what would happen at the temple? We would watch while they would do what to this animal? Kill it. Yes? Kill it. And every time we did that, that would tell us what? Our guilt's a terrible thing. Again. And again, and again, and again, more guilt, more condemnation, more reminding us that our sin is terrible and for sin there must be some kind of sacrifice. But this is where our rest is. Not on tablets of stone, but on the human heart. Not with the blood of bulls or goats or sheep, not endlessly, but Hebrews tells us once. For all sin, for whoever would believe, Jesus, our great high priest, with his own blood, 
his own body enters not the tabernacle on earth, which is a copy of the heavenly tabernacle, but enters the very heavenly tabernacle, presents himself in the presence of the Holy Spirit to the Father, and the Father says, it's finished. The work of righteousness for all time, all time, for whoever believes, is finished. Therefore, our response can be works righteousness or Jesus. Nothing else. And so let me close with these words that Jesus himself said, Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Can I read that just one more time? As we prepare to come to the table, to remember, as Jesus said, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. Remember the 10, the 613, the 2,000 old pages. Celebrate. And Jesus says, there is a way that is not a way that is burdensome, that is not heavy, that is not ill-fitting, that is not impossible, that's not at some point gonna trip you up but remember also as Christians that the New Testament doesn't then become law to us. It doesn't become law to us. We don't read it and write law. We don't read it and write law that we can boast because we're fulfilling it more or better than other people. We don't live in a works righteousness way to present ourselves in front of others as being better than them. If we find ourselves boasting, it's because we are not believing in the rest trusting in the rest, living in the rest that Christ died for. So let me read those words one more time as we come to eat of the body of Christ and drink of the blood of Christ shed for us, a body broken for us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light.